musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a big thanks to Hans L. for making a direct donation to the salon to help offset some of the expenses involved with these podcasts. And additional support for the podcast also comes from Rock Z and Benjamin L., both of whom recently became my newest supporters on Patreon. Also, I'd like to give a shout-out to some good souls who won't actually hear it for several weeks. First, they have to recover from this year's Burning Man Festival. <laughs> and, of course, they are the wonderful people who have built Camp Soft Landing and who have organized and are running this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. If all goes well, we're going to be able to hear some recordings of the uh, more than two dozen talks that they've scheduled for this year. In fact, uh, according to the lecture schedule for this year, Ashley Booth and Erica Siegel are delivering their talk right now. It's titled, How to Be a Psychedelic Ambassador. And I'm looking forward to listening to that along with you here in the salon a little later this year. So now I'm going to play a recording for you of a recent conversation that I had with Zoe Helena, who already had a very interesting life before psychedelics came along for her. Now, when she was 10 years old, her parents moved to New Zealand, where Zoe grew up. She eventually returned to the United States, where she received a master's degree in fine arts. And uh, she then not only worked in the arts, but also in the corporate world of Fortune 500 companies as well. But it was in Peru in 2008 that Zoe had her first ayahuasca experience. And like many of us, it was life-changing. Since then, Zoe has founded and participated in the growth of several organizations that seek to reach a better balance for life on this planet, mainly through the advocacy of psychedelic plants, among other things. Her newest platform, which she calls Psychedelic Feminism, intrigued me no end. So I decided to begin our conversation by asking, what exactly does she mean by psychedelic feminism? I think the first thing I would say is that what has really started to be what people think of when they think of me is psychedelic feminism, which is something that I came up with not that long ago of my, you know, inside. I, I didn't share it with the world, but I remember thinking, what in the world is it that I'm doing? I know I'm an environmentalist. I know I'm a feminist. I know I'm working with psychedelic sacred plants. What where are the connections? And it, it just, it just hit me, you know, psychedelic feminism. Of course it is. I've been a feminist all my life because I'm a female and I'm, you know, I have some self-esteem and I went through life in a way that I wanted to do things. I was really switched on as a young kid. I was born in 64. So I remember the sixties and the early seventies as a child, but I was a child in a very artistic, creative environment. The sciences were there too. So I was lucky to be encouraged to be creative and I was treated as a real person as opposed to children are to be seen and not heard. So I would say that I was a feminist, you know, a real outspoken feminist really early. So there's that. 
uh, I also started working really young, so I immediately started to notice how people would treat me differently for no other reason than that I was female. And that wasn't always a bad thing, but it was a curious thing. And sometimes, as I got older especially, I started to notice that there were some doors and windows that would just simply shut for no other reason that I was born female. And it had nothing to do with my abilities or my interests or any of that. So that began very, very early. Well, when you're a female, in a male-dominated culture, which we have and have had for thousands of years, not just here in the United States, but most countries. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find any culture that's truly matriarchal or even 50-50. So when you're born in a female in a male-dominated culture, you begin to be treated differently in ways that begin to really hold you back and can also hurt. And they're insidious and they are omnipresent. And they're quite varied also. So then you also learn that one of the things you get is you get silenced. And when you get silenced, you begin to internalize it and put it way inside you. So all of this is just feminism. None of this is psychedelic feminism. The difference being what, what one of the things that happens with psychedelics that so many people are talking about now and is, I think, part of the psychedelic renaissance is this intentional journeying with psychedelics. I'm interested in the sacred plants. I'm really interested in the ones from nature. I'm married to an ethnobotanist, so that's how I found psychedelics. But what's intriguing to me is this intentional journey where you look inside yourself and you really say, what are those things inside me that specifically are there because of being born and raised female in a male-dominated culture? What are those pieces inside me that are conditioning that doesn't help me, doesn't serve me in any way, maybe even really holds me back, um, or uh, wounds from the patriarchy that are, you know, can be quite terrible and traumatic or can be more subtle, um, such as, you know, silencing or such as um, just sexual harassment that kept you back or having to compromise to get anywhere in the world. Um, those kinds of things are the things we're looking at with psychedelics and it's been fascinating well you know as as you were talking just now zoe i i uh got to thinking that that what you're saying also extends to other people who are are kept out like young people whose opinions aren't listened to uh people of color who are are excluded as well uh and and uh, even poor white kids sometimes get excluded <laughs> from uh, things. So so what you're saying has a lot more of a, a general appeal, uh, I think, in that yes. uh, we can all relate to uh, yes. being excluded because of something that we had nothing to do with. Yes, and the interesting thing is I, I focused on this in part because I just was going with the flow of my own healing, primarily with ayahuasca and cannabis, I would say. So, I, and also, this is my expertise. This is what I've had as an experience myself. I've also had many very close women friends who have had many, many, many conversations way before any psychedelics. So I, I know the problem. And so I focused on that. And yes, there are approaches that would work for anyone. In fact, you could take different oppressed groups, like you said, or people who are feeling like they have no voice or they don't have a strong enough voice. You can also take different types of, of subgroups, such as people with PTSD or people who are suffering from depression or alcoholics or even going even more specific. You could take a group of children with um, alcoholic parents. You can take different groups and really work in the sort of preparation stage, the deep immersion stage, and the integration stage afterwards 
all of these different stages, really focusing on those things. And wow, they bring up a lot. You know, uh, another thing that interests me about your work, Zoe, is that, uh, you know, people that are listening to this are, are going to say, well, you know, she's a medicine woman, goes to Peru and all. But in, mm-hmm. in reading your, your bio, you, you were on the corporate fast track. It brought back a lot of memories, bad ones, a lot of them, too. But, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I think maybe uh, you, you should uh, backtrack a little bit and, and, how did, you know, before psychedelics, you were on a whole different track than you're on now, and, and you must have been searching all this time, but how did, you, how did you go from the corporate world to where you are now in the world of psychedelic medicine? Oh, I'm smiling because it's, it is an interesting track like yours has been. I've, you know, corporate America came later for me. I had already had several successful careers, but I... I don't know where to start. I, I think the start is I was born in 64, which is the piece about being born in the 60s, but not really remembering it in the same way that older baby boomers would remember. I'm, I was born the last year of the baby boomers. So I am a boomer. I'm just a baby boomer, <laughs> a baby, baby boomer, I guess. So yeah, I, I have hilarious conversations with the older boomers about that because half the time they look at me and go, no way. And I absolutely relate to, to being a boomer. So the 60s was fabulous for me. Everything was there. I was a very psychedelic kid. I just didn't actually have to take any because, hey, kids are psychedelic. Kids are naturally psychedelic, especially kids who are, you know, encouraged to be creative. So I, I didn't need any psychedelics, and, but all of my dad's students were these gifted performing artists, and they were amazing, and they were older, and they were all doing everything, you know, um, including there were times on campus where they were all nude, you know, that happened. But with the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 60s and early 70s, I was a kid, so, you know, yeah, I heard the rock and roll, but when the sex and the drugs part came around, it was time for me to kind of, you know, go to bed. (laughs) I was too young to enjoy that piece of the 60s and the 70s, but I do definitely remember it. And what I remember most is this idea, which was definitely a childlike ideal view, was that, oh, wow, the adults have figured it out, and it's all going to be great from here. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I mean. I relate to being a boomer because I, too, got really disappointed with the 80s. Well, weren't we all, you know, and yeah. you know, it's a, a, a kind of a, a hot buzzword that, that you use, of course, is feminism. And yes. uh, I, I graduated from college the year you were born, 64. <laughs> I love and, it. and the year before that, my girlfriend, who went to Michigan State, uh, got me to read uh, The Feminine Mystique. And to be honest with you, here I was, you know, a, a young college student, and I was shocked just shocked at how poorly women had been treated because my dad was really, you know, he took care of his mother and his sister and my mother and her sister. And, you know, I was just taught to really respect women. And, and I, it never occurred to me that they were being prejudiced against, you know, it just was a shock to me when I read, it. I think that book probably shocked a lot of people. So I'm, I'm one of these old guys that's been kind of familiar with feminism, but it's gone through so many transitions that uh, old people like me, especially sometimes, I hear the word feminism and they just run away. And then when you say psychedelic feminism, I have this picture of of uh, people with wild eyes burning their bras or something. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, the burning of the bra thing was like the seventies, and it had to be, and it was of its time, and we don't do that anymore. I, I know, I, you know, I, I am kind of familiar with where things are now. Yeah, yes. 
but you know, it's what you're saying in, in a lot of ways, there are a couple of different things. There was a lot in there. One is I'm not a man hater and never have been. Love men. Love, I should say, I love males. And I love, little boys are wonderful. So I'm not a man hater. I don't think that's healthy. I think this is about balance and it's about where we are today in this ongoing feminist battle that is not done yet. There's, in fact, I'm, you know, I'm 54, just turned 54. So I've seen just over half a century of very, very, very slow progress. I'd really like to see that speed up. And I believe that psychedelics can potentially help us do that. And hope, I'm hoping they will. And that's the core nature behind psychedelic feminism. And like you said, that can be for anybody. But just to say, just to make this clear, anybody can be a feminist. You don't have to be female to be a fem- feminist. A feminist is someone who believes that women are equal, basically, to, to men. And it, that's a very simple thing. And it also is about balance being more healthy. Right. It's, you know, it's healthy for everybody, for the earth also. I mean, the facts of the matter is, and people don't like to hear this, but, and again, I'm not blaming you personally. I'm not blaming men personally. This is a long history that brought us to here, and some of it's a bit random. But we're destroying our own planet, and it's getting pretty desperate. And right now, we still have a very strong patriarchy around the world. To various cultures have a little better treatment here and there, but it's still very much male-dominated. So that's got to be an indication of an imbalance problem, ultimately, in our species. And if we don't get a hold of that and do something about it, then we don't have a species, and we take everything else with us when we go. And for me, I love humans, so I'd like to see us um, evolve and do better. And I know I'm not alone on this podcast. I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who've come to that same conclusion because I've never seen anything like psychedelics for moving the conversation forward. And, and you know, obviously, I, I totally agree. You know, I have five grandchildren, and four of them are women. And, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a big stake in this myself. And what you're saying about the environment, I think, is it's even much more serious than those of us who have been paying attention have been thinking. Because uh, with the oceans warming and the Arctic warming, we're in some really uh, – I, I didn't think what's happening today was going to happen until long after I died. But I'm still going to be alive to uh, help my grandkids uh, cope with some of this. Because – Things are changing rapidly, and uh, I, I, I have come to the conclusion, as you have, I think, that uh, while not, not even a large percentage of humans uh, need to uh, participate in psychedelics, but we all need to come around to the kind of thinking that comes out of psychedelics, and everybody I've ever met that has used psychedelics comes out much greener and much more aware of, of nature and life. So uh, I think they are critical to uh, human survival on this planet. I hate to be so melodramatic about it, but I'm, I guess we're both preaching to the choir here. We are totally in sync. And I, I often will tell people when they're asking me about psychedelic feminism and Cosmic Sister especially, Cosmic Sister is really where ecofeminism and psychedelic feminism meet because I don't think it, I think it would be very, very difficult. In fact, I can't even really imagine it to be a psychedelic feminist and not be an ecofeminist because you really just need, you know, you're so in touch with nature. You're so reconnected with nature because we are of nature, no matter how much we try to pretend we're not. We still are. We, we have these bodies we live in and they're a natural thing. They're from the, they're from nature. So if we're, you know, with, with psychedelics reconnecting, then we're going to realize what's going on. And we're also, it's the funny thing. Another thing about psychedelics, I think, can really 
help us jog through irrational thinking within ourselves. So people are able to deny things like climate change or deny very significant problems that we're all facing as a species. And psychedelics can really help bust through that and say, oh, okay, I see it now. Yeah, you know, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, that, you know, of course, you know, we're part of nature, uh, with the exception of that, we have opposable thumbs, and, and we've managed to use the technology of language. And then I got thinking, yeah, I guess, actually, we're just the freaks of nature, everything else is in balance. And we have to get our human species back in balance, which I, I believe it was at one time. You do? You think so? Way long time ago. <laughs> Before America was great again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm talking yeah. pre-agriculture, tribal days, you know, when, uh, you know, it wasn't as, as uh, comfortable and, and uh, I, I still have to believe that people fell in love and loved their kids, you know, and, and uh, had some fun times. I don't think that we were just purely animals as we were developing agriculture. I think that uh, a lot had been taking place there, and uh, I think there was a lot of balance. But, of course, there weren't a lot of humans either. Well, I think that the truth is, depending on how far you really want to go back, I mean, I, you know, so far as we know, we're all from Africa. So let's say we go back um, 10,000 years. You know, there's still lots of different cultures and the cultures are each going to have their strengths and weaknesses. I was talking with my husband about this too, because of course he's had to go through this whole psychedelic feminism thing with me, which is a hoot. He's 66. So, you know, he's, he's survived the seventies as well. <laughs> he knows, yeah. <laughs> but you know, he's great. And we talk about it and he says, you know, we, we basically to cut to the chase agreed that the truth is some way back in the day, at least in certain regional areas where people had, let's face it, inbred for a long time in tribes, they were uh, different types of shapes and sizes. So in that balance, it seems that typically the male is larger than the female in a human tribe. Just as if you have a wolf tribe or a lion pride, the males are quite a bit larger than the females usually. So there's this physical you know, dominance that in the early days probably did come into play. Now, you look at today, it shouldn't be the case, although in some cases it would be, but I was, you know, debating with him that doesn't really exist anymore because now we have guns, for example, and we also have such a diverse group of people coming together all over the world and people traveling the world that you will literally have one group of people who tend to be a smaller size and another group of people who tend to be larger. So you could get one really large, you know, incredibly strong woman and a little teeny guy from another culture who's tall in his culture, and you put them together, and uh, that doesn't even exist anymore. So it's of the past is the point. It's of the past, but it may very well have been the reason that we got on this track in the first place where we were so imbalanced. And yes, we are a bit of freaks, I think, in a lot of ways, and we may be an invasive species at the moment. We are. So the question is, can we get beyond that, and will psychedelics help? And it seems like you and I are on the same page there, which I'm not surprised. And, and the, the thing I like about the phrase uh, psychedelic feminism is, as I understand feminism, it's not like trying to start a matriarchy and just replace the patriarchy. It's, it's to, to balance things out, like you were just saying. I'm so glad you brought the thing up about the matriarchy, because, because often people will assume that I believe that we would be better off with a matriarchy. And the, the thing is, that wouldn't have been balanced either. Even if that had 
come into play thousands of years ago. The truth is it would have, the women or the females would have probably developed some pretty perverse, weird power things over the males. And it would have been an alternate universe that you could, you know, write news movies about or novels about, but it, it hasn't happened, and this is what has happened, and this is where we are today. Uh, the war thing is interesting because when you have an imbalance this long, like this is a very long-term imbalance of gender, okay? Even language and culture is so embedded in these ideas of defining which gender is what. So I even question ideas like a man's feminine side. I suspect that the male has a beautiful, sensitive, receptive side when they're born. Little boys are very sensitive. So when you start to categorize what is feminine and what is masculine, over and above our sort of physical characteristics, which can also get you into trouble, uh, you run into trouble pretty fast. You start to you know, really break that down. What is masculine? What is feminine? Naturally. And I really don't think we can know is the truth i think we've been that conditioned you know that's that's a really good point uh and and uh, especially like with little boys instead of saying uh they're being feminized they say well you know he's honoring his gentle part of his nature there and uh, yes. the the words are are important as you say I think honoring is a really beautiful word. Honoring, celebrating, um, expanding, experiencing all of these wonderful positive words to really support these characteristics that are often suppressed in males. And that gets back to psychedelic feminism because for me, where I've come with it, I've gotten more and more to understand on a very deep level for myself how men have also been, or males have also been victimized and wounded by the patriarchy. It's not good for males either. And, you know, I mean, there was something you were talking about with trying to understand feminism as well and, and other, um, when you first came across it, I wanted to bring up the movie The Black Klansman, which is out right now and is just an absolute must-see work of art, in my opinion. I think that with each generation, we need to bring these things out again. That I remember those times in the United States. We moved to New Zealand when I was uh, just about to turn 10. It was 1974. I remember the period that the Black Klansman is about. And it was a great period of time, even though there was so much upheaval. And it was, it was kind of like an ayahuasca ceremony in that we were all kind of saying, hey, we need to look at our cultural problems and do something about them. We're going to get them all out. We're going to purge them and recreate. And then it, there was backlash. So here we are again, <laughs> and uh, thank you, Spike Lee, for that movie, because he's educated an entire new group of, of people in the United States and abroad, and it's very, very important work. When you look at racism, sometimes it's easier to understand sexism, and vice versa, because ultimately what it's about is this group of people are treated differently, and they carry wounds because, because of it, and they know these wounds. They, they experience these wounds every single day. Sometimes I switch it around and talk about that. And also sometimes it's the same with classism, especially places like England. You, you have really significant classism there. You have it here too in the United States, but it's a little different here because we believe in, the, you know, making money and becoming like, you know, you're always still nouveau riche, whatever that is. But all of these kinds of isms, ageism, big one, 
these are not good. And, and, you know, a lot of this comes from the language we pick, we pick up as young, very young children. I, you know, I just edited a, an Aldous Huxley talk in which he, he kept talking about mankind instead of humankind. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're raised that way. And I think uh, especially, you know, I, I used to practice law in Houston, lived in the Deep South a lot, and, and saw the way these kids are raised about, about race. And, you know, it's just sort of a second nature that they, they hear this thing, these things from their parents. And, you know, I was lucky because <laughs> my, my mother uh, was the bookkeeper for the uh, garbage company in our town and it was all black people. So every Friday we'd have like 20 garbage trucks around our, our house on the corner and uh, they would take me for rides in the truck and they'd come pick up their paychecks. And so I got to toot their horns and ride in their trucks. And these guys, I grew up with these guys as my friends. And so I was shocked when I moved south and saw young kids who are already, you know, essentially racist. You know, there's these things again, you know, we're talking about this basically movie set in the 70s. Well, even back with something like South Pacific, the musical, there's a song called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. There may be a different name for it. I don't remember the actual title of it. But if you read the lyrics, they're really quite profound. And it's basically about, you know, a child doesn't, is not born racist. It's what you're saying. You have to be carefully taught to hate and fear. I can't remember all the lyrics, but if you were looking, you know, Google them, they, they would probably be very relevant. So again, each generation needs to carry this forward. We have to keep up the fight. We really have to keep it up. And when we look at who's, you know, our current president, it's pretty frightening how how fast this switched around again. You, you know, uh, since you, you brought him up, I'm going to switch back to my safe place because, <laughs> because you, you had, when, and I, I will go out and Google the South Pacific sound uh, song because you triggered, triggered a really cool memory I hadn't had in years. My dad and mom drove in to Chicago to see Mary Martin perform in the South Pacific. When they got back, they woke my brother and I up like at one in the morning to tell us all about it. So I, I, I love that, uh, that play. I'll go out and check that song now. When you listen to that song, it's not the greatest melody. When you listen to it, it, it makes me cry. And <laughs> a lot of it makes me cry because of how slow progress has been. Seriously. You know, there, there is no question, uh, depending on where you measure it from, about how slow progress is. Uh, <laughs> but just 14 years ago, when I started the Psychedelic Salon, I almost didn't use the word psychedelic because it was so toxic at the time. Ah, yes. And, and, you know, when I moved to California, I, I came from where I was having to drive down to the dark side of Tampa and, and buy dope on the street from people. And now I, I go to a website and put in my credit card and it's delivered the next morning. So uh, there has been some progress, you know. And, growing hours. We're in Massachusetts. It's wonderful. Right. And, and you know, my youngest son is just here and he's concerned about uh, the gay rights are slipping back too. And, you know, he's married. Oh, yeah? He and his husband live in Phoenix and uh, their next door neighbor is this woman running for Senate and probably is going to win. So and <laughs> he, he's seeing a lot of the work that they have worked for all these years is starting to slip a bit but on the other hand from where i'm starting from a lot of progress has been made on gay rights women's rights blacks rights yes. but we 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 haven't uh you know we've only made the first step in each of those things on a very long journey 
But at least I think that we're still inching forward and not going back too much. We're just slowing the progress a little bit. But I'm still a, a hopeless optimist about uh, things are going to. Uh, I think you know I I, I like this uh, concept of the parallel universe that that they talk about, and I I look at these parallel universes as a bunch of of like flat plates that are all stacked up against each other. And one of them is the happy ending universe. And so I'm nav navigating through all these plates. When I find the happy ending universe, that's where I'm staying. <laughs> oh, happy ending. I love it. Well, you know, I am an optimist too. I'm ultimately hopeful. I'm also a realist. I look at what's in front of me and I think that, yes, we're moving forward. Very, We are progressing. It's true. However, we can see by this person that won't be mentioned again, so you don't have to go to your safe place. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're witnessing how fast it can backlash. Right. So it's not enough to inch forward this slowly. We're not going to make it if we don't evolve faster. It's just the truth. I know I'm not alone in thinking this because it's zeitgeist. This is what's going on right now in the world. There are other people like me coming to the same conclusion. I'm sure there are many. It's out there to look at it. So the optimist in me has found psychedelics. And I'm, I've been exploring, mostly with women, this particular thing just to see how it goes. And it's been quite fascinating to watch women especially go down to the Amazon and work on these specific issues and, and witness them before, during, after. It's not a magic pill, obviously, or magic potion, I should say. It doesn't cure all, but the progress is fascinating, and their experiences and their their stories of healing and their visionary experiences and how those then factor into their lives at home and how then often they want to come back and bring someone else. And just watching that evolution from a more individual basis and then watch them go out in the world and spread it around and pay it forward has just made, it feels wonderful because I, I felt like, you know, I, I couldn't do a huge amount of good. I didn't have that kind of resources. So at a certain point I was feeling pretty desperate, despair, despairing is the word. I, I felt very despairing, mostly from my wildlife work, which again goes back to, humans because we're the problem wildlife would be fine if we weren't here my wildlife work had put me into such a a funk you know um because it we're losing the battle that i asked the ayahuasca you know what to do next and i got a very simple message do what you can start small start with the individuals and Treat them like they matter because they do, because it all is about each individual. So I started with one woman who did something I thought was really brave and wonderful for her family, for a family member, probably saved her life. And I knew that she needed, she was traumatized by the experience too. And I asked her if she wanted to come down and said I'd pay for it. And that was the beginning of the Plant Spirit Grant, which is the, the deep immersion grant in the Amazon. And it's probably the most charismatic of the three grants, but the other two grants are, I think, equally important and quite different. I'd like to share that with the audience too, because that's really what Cosmic Sister is most known for is these grants. And they did come out of that experience. That was the answer I got from the ayahuasca. They've grown substantially. And through the process, of course, I too drink. So I too learn. And the bonds that we have in ceremony and just our extraordinary 
My husband also comes, and I want to kind of clarify that too. People tend to think it's all women circles, and a few articles have sort of insinuated that they're not all women circles. They're often primarily women, but I've been feeling like I want a little bit more balance there too. This is a tricky subject because many of the women have expressed that they like that there are, are mostly women and they feel more comfortable going into this territory. But I also have witnessed that if men are working on similar types of things, that too can be very revealing to a group. The group dynamic is wonderful and very important, I think, at least in the ceremonies that I participate in. And I also want to just, while we're on it, I'd like to clear something up too. I am not a shaman or a healer in the sense of leading ceremonies. I've been asked to train by some pretty amazing maestros, which is a great compliment, but it's not my path. I, I really respect their calling and their work and their expertise. And I like to bring people to them and then do what I do to maybe help them understand what they're going to do and, and how best to work with the medicine. Again, in those three specific phases, that's where I feel like I, I can offer the most good. So I don't know if that helps at all. Um, well, you know, actually, Zoe, that's a, a perfect segue into to a question I have for you. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I and going to your website, there's there's all these different uh, tracks. And I spent a lot of time going down different tracks. And and I was I was trying to relate. I've had three uh, long term, you know, 10 to 20 year relationships with three different women in my life. And all three of them before I met them were single mothers. And their lives were oh just hectic. I mean, it was really I, I can't express how how much I feel for single mothers. It's just an awesome yes. job they have. So I'm thinking, and and also you know, I I know you, it's hard to feel sorry for them, but soccer moms are equal. <laughs> they, they a lot of them are carrying down a job and trying to pick up their kids at daycare and all this stuff. And and women who are are raising kids, whether they're a soccer mom or a single mom, how and they can't all go to the jungle, but how can they get some some uh, some assistance or, or some, uh, you know, support from uh, through your groups? How, how could they, they what, what would that, they do when they go to a website? That specific group? Uh, well, each woman is, is really seen as an individual. You don't have to be a mother. You don't have to be even old enough to, to have married and had kids or anything like it. Not that you have to get married anymore, <laughs> but you, you don't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that specific, but we have had single moms come and they've had some really great work. We've also had a volleyball mom come. She's also my editor and she's wonderful. Her name's Robin. So we've had different women who would fall into that category. But if there was somebody specifically that, that somebody, that's a group that you care about, that you've personally witnessed the, the hardships there, right? There right. are many groups like that within the, the larger group female. Okay. I like to try to keep it diverse because I only have so many resources. This thing could grow just to be clear. The only thing holding it back at this point is funding. I get so many people applying for these grants and I have to tell you, it's all over the world and they're quite remarkable women, quite varied, all different ages from younger than I'd like to bring to older than I think could handle it. What if so, what if somebody's <laughs> listening that might be able to uh, provide some funding? How would they get a hold of you? Oh well, uh, there are. This is where it gets a bit tricky. But the easiest thing to do is just to email me. Um, you can you can go through the contact form on on the site, or if they're really interested in providing that kind of funding, um, huh, 
I don't want to give my email out on. No, no, don't do that. The contact form does reach me, but if you want to just go to cosmicsister.com slash support, you, you can donate through MAPS, which is my fiscal sponsor. And so your donation would be tax deductible. And that will go specifically to Cosmic Sister Psychedelic Feminism grants. It does not go to the Deep Immersion Ayahuasca grant. That was where they do the line with Uncle Sam. They didn't think Uncle Sam would be cool with, you know, and I quote, sending women down to the Amazon to trip. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's hilarious. So what we do is instead we provide a different type of grant on the side that's more of a creative grant, an educational grant where these women can begin to express what, how it was for them. They help to educate the public on their experience, their healing experience and self-liberation, I like to say, experience with ayahuasca. So that's how we get around that. And those grants, there are two grants. They're identical. They just have two different names. One is Women of the Psychedelic Renaissance, and the other is Cosmic Sisters of Cannabis. I only separated them out because cannabis is so huge as a category. It's an ambassador plant, a sacred plant, and a psychedelic. And it is really doing a number on our culture. And I, I, I just, I do everything I can to support the cultural movement of cannabis liberation. So I separate them out only because of that, but they're basically educational grants for women, everything from helping speakers, more women speakers speak at psychedelic conferences or cannabis conferences, um, helping women to get uh, place articles and write articles, journalistic articles, uh, more personal articles, things like that, photojournalism, anything that can move the conversation forward from the female voice perspective. I'm doing something that might really be interested to your younger millennial listeners, female millennial listeners. If you're hearing this, please apply for a Women of the Psychedelic Renaissance grant or, or and or a Cosmic Sisters of Cannabis grant because I am right now putting together a project for millennial women because I feel that the millennial women in the psychedelic and cannabis community are not being heard enough and they deserve to be. They're getting older and they're quite remarkable. And I think they get a really bad rep in the media in general. So I'm doing something that's focused on them right now. And I'm really excited about it. Very, very excited about the finalists I have right now in hand. They're quite remarkable, very different. And I'm looking for a few more. You know, something you just now said, too, that uh, I think it, it could uh, be a benefit to a lot of people that are sitting there saying, well, you know, I don't have any money to donate. I can't go to Peru. What can I do? But you you, you use the phrase that's so important. It's what you're doing is moving the conversation along. And yes. everybody can do that, whether it's at your, your you know, at lunch, at the uh, lunch table at work or or even in your church group. If you haven't go to church, you can always move the conversation along. And Myron Stoloroff, you know, he lived into his 90s, but he was so good. Uh, he Every time he got on a shuttle to an airport, he picked up a conversation about psychedelics with people. And that was right. back in the 70s and 80s. But nowadays, it's so much easier to do. And I think both cannabis and ayahuasca, which are the two main substances I'm interested in and have definitely changed my life, the both of them. Yeah, and and the two of them are the most important things in my life. And you can talk about them now because ayahuasca is all over the news. And, of course, cannabis is as well. So uh, we can all move the conversation along every day. 
Well, this is exactly it. And I'm really excited about how that's going. And I'm very interested that you chose the two plants that I work with as well. Those are my two plants. I, I love mushrooms, but I haven't done a lot. Well, you know, my, my guess is, is those two plants chose us. <laughs> That's very, very possible. <laughs> Dennis McKenna told me once, he said to me, you owe it to yourself to explore mushrooms. <laughs> so I will do that. Something you might want to, I was going to say, something you might want to do with mushrooms. I, I've, I've done quite a bit of mushroom exploration, and I, I, I took a tape recorder, now it would be a digital recorder, and I've got uh, maybe 20 hours of what I call my mushroom tapes that <laughs> they, they wouldn't make any sense to anybody else, but I can actually recall the colors and visuals I had with some of them. So uh, be sure to document it if you do oh, it. Wonderful. What a great idea. So you literally were... were, were journaling um, <laughs> while you were tripping. I was kind of anal back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm glad I did it now. You know, hey, it's fun to talk to someone who understands taping. You know, <laughs> who even uses that analog term. I and know. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a funny thing, too. My, my grandson is into analog vinyl, and I asked him if he it was into 45 RPMs, and he didn't know what a 45 was. <laughs> So, oh boy. Yeah, but, the vinyl thing is awesome. What a trip. You know, the I whole know. thing is so interesting to watch. I, and I do want to say something about that since we're on this subject. And again, you know, this, this can be all humans or you could focus in on the, the group that I'm focusing on, which is females. And they are, we're about 50% of the population around the world. So it's a large group. Right. But within <laughs> that group, you can always create subgroups. Okay. So one of the things we deal with, this is a classic patriarchal divide and conquer tactic. It's also colonialist, but colonialists were not the only dominators. There were others in different times in different places. So I don't like to use colonialism so much as, you know, dominators. Okay. So the dominators were, they knew that one of the best ways to keep a population down and take them over and, you know, be able to somehow get them to do what they wanted to do, be subservient in some way was to divide and conquer within that group, whatever group they were conquering. So they've done a really good number on women, and we have this thing where we are brought up to not trust other females of different generations huh. or, or other females. We compete. We, you know, we're taught to tear each other apart. The thing with mean girls, that's a very real thing. I have a, currently have a troll out there. And it's very, very unfortunate to see a, um, a woman – being like that about another woman because that's that's a patriarchal wound in my opinion yeah you know it's it's interesting and it definitely is and and that's probably uh more difficult for women in in uh among other women because men uh men don't really do that quite so much i don't think uh, to each other you know we we beat each other in sports or just ignore <laughs> one another or something like that but uh you know getting getting really kind of uh stalking and getting mean to others uh uh we seem to move on or at least the men i know i guess but. well it may be the men you know because i think the predominant probably gender in trolling would be male actually but um but back to the the divide and conquer thing is very real so with cosmic sister i do everything i can to include in the diversity dimension you know when i'm looking i really try for diversity i i want more and more but part of that diversity 
dimension is time of life. And I do prefer that to age because really what we're getting down to is the time of life, right? The, the life experience and what you've learned in your time of life. Some people haven't learned very much. Well, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the, the time of life thing is kind of fascinating to me because, uh, I'm I'm doing a lot of looking back now, and and uh, God, I'm glad I didn't. None of you guys knew me in my 30s and 40s because I think I might have been a real asshole. You know, I was <laughs> I was I was so confident and cocky and starting businesses and doing all this stuff and traveling around. Uh, I I I I wasn't real obnoxious. I don't think to people, but I was pretty full of myself. And then after I turned 70. And I started reflecting and looking back a little bit. I, uh, I guess wisdom comes from knowing how naive you were about the world. And I really had a lot of false assumptions about things, I realized. And, and I've lived a, a nice life. I haven't been mean to people. And I, you know, I try not to burn my bridges. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I think that as you get older, uh, where I turned a corner was when I realized that whatever I'm going to be in this world, I am. There's no more, no more companies I'm starting. I'm not going to get rich again. I'm not going to dis. you know, I am what I am, like Popeye said. And, and uh, once you realize that, you kind of relax and you don't try to show off and be something that you want people to think you are. And all, all you really want is recognition and others to care. That's the bottom line. Your cultural references are a hoot. Papa, I love it. Okay. <laughs> I'm teasing you because I'm 54, you see. So it's all relative is the thing. And that's, I'll tell you, I love being in the Maloka with a group of people who are very different ages. Fantastic. And, and you know that, that the ayahuasca circle I participated in for quite a few years was, uh, it was about 75% men, 25% women. And of the men, half of them were gay. And Interesting. It was really an interesting uh, group, especially the next morning after, you know, when you go around the circle and talk. But we we found that almost every time the the uh, every time we had a, a circle where no women showed up, they were really not as pleasant as they were when we had some kind of a softening influence. And we talked about that a lot, but, and, and nothing really changed. The stories were the same and all, but there was some sort of a vibration that just kind of made the, the, the evening go much better. So any man who's lucky enough to go to the jungle with one of your groups will find that uh, he's in heaven. <laughs> I am really looking carefully this year. I mean, it's tough because I don't go that often. And I really, like I said, I could go down much more often if, if that was possible and if it was something I wanted to do. So, you know, space is limited is what I'm trying to say, but I do really enjoy having more men in the Maloka too. And I think they are going to be really special spots for whoever manages to snag them first. And it, that's the hard part is already there's so many, I don't know how to do, how to even look through that selection process. How do you choose? And I do look at it from a diversity perspective as well. And I, I go with my gut a lot. Um, you know, because there's a, other di- diversity dimensions, for instance, someone who's a, a hyper intellect with a, a ridiculous CV and somebody else who, you know, um, maybe is a single mom and didn't get to go to college or, or is taking care of her mother or whatever it is that they just didn't go that route. But they're wonderful in their own ways and very intelligent. You know, that, that's a diversity dimension for sure. You put them in the Maloka together. It's very interesting. It can be really healing. 
if you, if you could see me right now, you would see, you'd see a big smile on my face about you, you're dealing with a problem. How do I choose among all these people? Whereas a few years uh, ago, it was, I wonder if anybody's going to apply. <laughs> well, isn't that a wonderful problem to have, though? It, it mean, is. It is. Abundance challenge. Now, I want to just run. There are a couple of notes I've taken. I don't want to miss these. One is I want to mention mentoring because we were, when we were talking about the different ages and the wisdom that you do earn over time, you know, getting older for me, it's been such a strange experience because now the younger ones come to me and they're looking at me for wisdom. That was a very weird transition. For me. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> for a few years, I just would like literally tear up because all I could think were the mistakes I'd made in life. It was extremely humbling. <laughs> I know you. I know what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Then I realized I need to um, step up to this. I need to, I, it was hard to put into words. I need to own this in a way, at least in their eyes, because in their eyes, they're seeing me as wiser and older. And the truth of the matter is, in some respects, I am. So what I need to do is just simply say, look, I've learned a few things along the way, and I'm seeing something for you I'd love to share with you. So, Have you been reading my notes? <laughs> no! <laughs> I, I, I say very similar things. <laughs> uh, that's good, because that means, I always say to myself, when you end up talking with others in this scene and you're coming to similar conclusions, that, to me, it seems like we're on the right track and that, that feels really good to me. But yeah, so mentoring, very important. And everybody can mentor. I tell younger people who will come with us, you know, there was a 21 year old last time. And I said, you know, you can mentor someone who's 10, you know, and really change their life, change their life, you know, by saying something, just even the smallest thing, like, well, you're really good at art. Exactly. You know, you know my my thirteen uh, year old granddaughter is uh, a mentor in her her junior or her you know pre uh, middle school and uh, the eighth graders get to mentor the the new kids and she was one of them selected to do it and she's got uh, two or three kids that she'll be mentoring and is very excited about it and they and they've had classes about it and stuff so uh, it's really uh, important and the earlier someone starts I think the better and then they're in the habit of uh, picking up and helping people. I think in the other direction, it also helps people be better students to their mentors. Like I still have mentors, and sometimes, you know, in different fields, I would consider someone a mentor in a different way um, if they had an expertise I didn't have but were younger. That's right. also but it's a little different. When we're looking at time of life, you know, there are some women who were highly influential on my life, um, and some of them I've never met that I still consider mentors, like a Gloria Steinem. I've never met her. She's been extremely influential to me. You know, Christine Downing, I've never met. Well, I have met her in person, but it's a long time ago. But her best friend, who was in archetypal psychology, comparative mythology, it's a field that I've, I really love and could have, it could have been another track of my life if I had a clone. She's definitely been a mentor to me. And Jean Shinoda Bolin, same thing. Have I been mentored in person? Not so much. But their words and the things that they're sharing with me have helped me to have a really fabulous life, actually. Well, so, I, I am largely uh, who I am today because of my mentor that I had for many years in my uh, uh, early, or throughout my 20s and early 30s. 
There you go. And I have to say, you know, paying homage to my mentors that were actually in my life that I, you know, went to school with or learned with. I, I wouldn't be able to list them all. They've been so, there've been so many and there've been so many wonderful ones, but I, I'd say off the top of my head, I, I turned down a Yale scholarship to grad school and just out of undergrad to work with Patricia Zipperot, who you would never heard of. I can tell from your pause and most of the listeners <laughs> would never have heard of either. Look her up. She's one of the most influential theatricals of the past century. And, or just period. She was a costume designer, but she was also a self-confessed director junkie. So she worked with some of the finest of all directors. She was considered like what they would call it would be a director's designer. Okay. So the, the directors like working with her because she understood humans so well. She didn't talk about costumes. She talked about clothes and character and story. So she was an extraordinary mentor. And when you asked me about my career path, you know, for me, when I think about what I chose in the arts, I could have chosen anything in the arts. I ended up working in the theater because it was the most collaborative of the arts. And it was the most, the one where you could be a multidisciplinary artist. And it was, it was a strength, you know? So there are many different arts that come into play, but it's also about human condition. It's about character. What is character? You know, in method acting, especially character is action. It's very simple. It's not words, it's action. Now, if the words are, are in fact an action, like let's say a troll, I'm being trolled right now. So in that case, those words are actions or putting it up on social media, deciding to publish these re remarks, that is an action. And it shows character. It does. I think that all of these things in my past led me to where I am today. It, it may be a little difficult for somebody else to understand, but especially for the young people listening, I believe that the most important thing is to follow your true path as best you can. Follow your heart. Do what you love the most. Hopefully you also have a talent in it. You should listen to people when they, you know, sometimes, well, that's complicated. Sometimes people can judge you incorrectly. So follow your heart. Do your very, very best at what you choose to study. But don't feel like you're going to have to do that for the rest of your life because it's rarely the way things work. And I know I'm speaking to the converted with you, Lorenzo, because you have had a, a very a varied career path like I have. But a lot of young people don't realize it could go that direction. They get really worried about what are they going to study in college? You know, what's, what, what am I going to declare as a major? I was not that kid. I knew what I wanted really early on. I was hyper aware of it and I went after the mentors I wanted to work with. But I know there are a lot of people who don't know what they want. They haven't found it yet. They're exploring. And I think that the best thing to do is just do what you love the most and do it really, really well. And that then will lead you in the direction of where you'll you wherever it is you're gonna end up right now in my life. It's psychedelic feminism. Who knew? And, and, you know, that is perfect advice, and, and obviously I've, I've followed it myself. The thing also that you said was so important is that, you know, it may not be the thing that you want to do forever, that you, you could be following your bliss today, and, and uh, six years from now you say, you know, I've explored that cave as far as I'm going to go. I'm going to go out and find another one. And, and you have to be willing to let go. Uh, and here's where, where that is difficult because you're going to disappoint people. But yes. you, you, everybody's seen these uh, surveys now they've done in hospice care where 
uh, 90% of the people who are dying say their biggest regret is they always try to do what others wanted them to do or expected them to do, and they didn't follow their own dream. So your advice is right on, and I think that uh, I hope that everybody hearing it will uh, <laughs> bite the bullet and do that. <laughs> well, I, I there are, this again goes down to programming and psychedelics because I think a lot of these ideas are put into our heads by other people, maybe in our family. My family wasn't like that, but a lot of people's family are, but somewhere in their head saying, Oh, you need to be a, a, you know, I hate to say lawyer because I know you went into law. Law is great. By the way, if that's your calling, law is awesome. Uh, Law, you know, you need to be a doctor. You need to be a lawyer. You need to be a fill in the blank. You need to take the, you know, take over the country store, the restaurant, the whatever. No, you don't. You need to do what you love and you have one but do it the best you can because then it will be useful when you reach that phase you were talking about. Like, I like that idea. I've explored this cave as much as I can or whatever. I felt the same way. And I've, and my husband is the same. He's had some very interesting career changes over the year, but each one led to another started in, you know, yoga. He ended up in natural products was very influential in that ended up a medicine hunter of slash ethnobotanist. It's, it's uh he's like me that way you know i've run into first of all started in performing arts and again i was already a multidisciplinary artist and i was gifted and i was very disciplined also so i was good at it young and i could never choose one on over the other because i I got so much out of each and I was good at each. So I went into the theater because that's where I could continue to explore and express each of these things that I was good at and that I loved and work with others who were the same as I was. And the collaboration was wonderful. There's nothing like it when it comes together. When you're working with others like yourself who are really dedicated to the craft and, and are in the flow and all of that. And, you know, back then, you know, you're talking, you asked about my, my career path and where psychedelics fit in. There were no psychedelics in my life other than my own, you know, altered states that I could get into with art or with dance, which is an art. Uh, I didn't meditate in that sense back then, but I definitely my art was meditative because when you're in the flow, you are in an altered state of a type. So I did explore altered states of consciousness, but not with a quote unquote substance in my body. I didn't try anything. I had all of the propaganda from the backlash era. The sort of, I was in college in the, (laughs) just say, no, this is your brain on drugs era for real. And I bought the propaganda of, of cannabis. When I had an experience with cannabis, it was after I I was living with my sweetheart at the time, who was a, it's fair to say, very, very sweet uh, wake and baker. (laughs) (laughs) A real full on pothead. Okay. And I'd never touched the stuff, although we were living together. I was, I was afraid. I had all the ideas. I can't. Well, first of all, it was illegal and I was on scholarship. I was terrified I would lose my scholarship, which I might've. So there was that. But there was also this fear around, you know, letting go or, or becoming addicted or, you know, losing your mind and never coming back. All these ridiculous ideas from the 60s. And I, I was watching our neighbors. We were living in one of those houses where there were four different apartments. And I was watching a party downstairs with my neighbors who I liked, who were not in school. I was in school. He wasn't. He, he'd already graduated. They were older professionals, but they were still young. And they were having a great time. And there were no drinks. They weren't drinking. 
and everybody else at my college were drinking. It was drinking culture, which was terrible. They were already alcoholics at like 18, 19, 20. And I was here, I was 20, 21, something like that. And finally I said, I would like to try some of that. So he whipped me up a very strong bong, bong hit. And I took a hit and I had the full on psychedelic experience without question. You know, I'm I'm doing the math. I'm doing the math here, Zoe, and I'm figuring yeah. that was around 1984. Yes, you're very right. And 1984, for the first up through the first half of 1984, I was a Vietnam veteran, 42 years old, that had never smoked pot or done anything like that. Wow. Wow. And so you you and I started at the same time. Well, how about that? That's interesting. Well, here's the thing. It took me a long time speaking with media. I would tell this story. They would ask me, when was your first psychedelic experience? And I would always tell them about my first ayahuasca experience. And then finally I realized, but, well, actually. And then I realized, no, I had a full-on visionary, life-changing experience in Charlotte, North Carolina um, (laughs) with my then boyfriend sweetheart Kevin's bong hit. I it was it was really remarkable, and it was what I needed at the time as a whatever I was twenty one year old woman exploring my sexuality for the first time, really exploring. So I, it was a it was a self liberating experience. It changed everything, and then I again through the media I realized that my story I hadn't really understood what I was doing from that moment on. I would secretly with Kevin and others who were in our cannabis community, but secret from my school, I would explore cannabis as a way to get to the next level artistically because I was very good for my age and I needed some way to push it forward. And I found that if I worked with cannabis the right way, I was a lightweight and I still am. So I didn't need very much, but just a little bit and something would shift in the way I could do my assignment. I could get it to the next level and learn something myself, teach myself something. And so I was not going back from that. No one was going to take it away from me because what I wanted more, more than anything in the world was to be the best I could be in that subject. And that continued on through grad school. So I was definitely working with cannabis. I was never a stoner, like try to, you know, hide from my pain and things like that. That's not my nature, but I was absolutely exploring it in the same way I explore ayahuasca. It's just a different, well, it's a very different situation with ayahuasca. You know, those, those are, are two important words to use with, with uh, cannabis or the, any medicine is working with and exploring. You know, uh, both of those words uh, imply that that it's not just going to be a fun trip. While it will be pleasurable, but it's really pleasurable to get some kind of a creative insight as well. And that's when you're working with it. You know, I'm so glad. This is why we like each other. I hope we like each other. I like you a lot. We are really in sync. I use those words really carefully. And part of my, you know, work as an educator in this and moving the the conversation forward culturally, I understand culture. So I'm, I like to think of it as a cultural activism. I try to talk about these kinds of words, like the the words that you use, that you choose to use in in whatever you're doing, and you're speaking um, to media or your speeches or your journalism, if you're a writer, these things matter. I don't like the word use when associated with sacred plants. It's not very respectful. 
And it's not at all how I see it or experience it. I don't feel like I'm using anything I'm working with. Or, and, I, and the exploration is the same thing as, I like the word trip because I remember the 60s and it's, it's a great word. And you are tripping, it's the truth. But I also like visionary experience or altered state because they really say the same kind of thing, but there's an intention in it that's maybe a little bit different, right? Exactly. Exactly. I think that really matters. And when you're talking about it to people of varying degrees of, um, you know, their their journey with psychedelic, I think those are really important distinctions. And those are the kinds of things I do when I work with people and bring them down to the Amazon for the first time. Unless they're psychedelic um, explorers in their own sense. And many are. In fact, some of the people who come with me are psychonauts way beyond me. So there are, like I said, there's a, there's a big variety. People coming to the Amazon with me who have never taken a psychedelic in their life. Um, I had a wonderful woman, 67 years old. And the way she put it, which I thought was hilarious, was always the trip sitter and never the tripper. <laughs> <laughs> she just turned 70. She wants to go back down. She you know, had a wonderful experience. And she'd never done anything all through the 60s. Nothing. You know, Zoe, what you just said, for our first conversation, we, we are seemingly getting along pretty well. And uh, we've, we've gone on a little bit longer than I was usually going on. But uh, we're going to have to do this again. We're going to have to continue this conversation. I think that uh, we, can, we can have a lot of fun doing it. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get this out in a couple, uh, week from tomorrow. And then uh, in a month or so, uh, as, as you get some more, uh, you know, move along, you've uh, selected your grant uh, recipients and stuff like that, maybe we can do this again because uh, I still have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Oh, you're, aren't you wonderful? Um, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope we meet someday in person. I'll be at Spirit Plant Medicine in Vancouver this year. It's going to be a happening. It's quite a, quite a group. When, when is that taking place? Uh, it's the first weekend of November. I'm not speaking. I haven't gotten to that point where I can get up there yet. I'm working on that in the medicine space, but I will be there. And there are quite a few grant recipients who will be there as well. Speakers, five of them, and some others who are on educational grants to be present and be able to learn from these amazing people. Uh, there are a lot of, I have to say this because I have you, you, you're a big poobah male. Okay. I laugh about this term because big poobah male is like the big chief, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there are, uh, check out the lineup of big poobah males at this particular conference. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a blast. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be, a, I think it's going to be a happening. Yeah, you know, for the, the last uh, four and a half years, I, I, quit accepting any invites to speak because I just got sick and tired of seeing these old white men up on the stage, you know? Oh, but yes. I, well, that, that I, is a dimension I would love to speak with you about maybe on the next, uh, in our next conversation, because we didn't talk about that too much. That's right. a big part of what Cosmic Sister is about. It's trying to, to help, you know, with that problem, because that's an easy problem to solve. Well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to add to the problem by next month. I'm going to go up and speak at the Imagine Festival up in Orcas Island. So I'll be close to Vancouver, but not quite there when you're there. Well, I'm sure you'll be brilliant and I'm sure you have loads of things to share and I wish I could be there. So it's not all about kicking out the, the, the white males, the older white males. It's really about balance and making room. So if that means you have to have longer con conferences because you don't want to lose these wonderful guys, then, hey, that's what you got to do. 
Well, there's going to be an, a conference on Orcus again in March that I'm going to, and right now it's at least 50-50 men and women. So, uh, and it's not, yeah, it's not going to be exclusively psychedelics either. So uh, that that should be a lot of fun. But uh, we'll talk about that more. And you and I will probably talk at least once before then, because uh, as I said, Zoe, I still have a bunch of questions, and uh, I want to get into more uh, discussion about ayahuasca work and. Uh, We'll just, uh, we'll. I would love that. And just remember, you have four granddaughters. They're already going through this, not the psychedelic part, but the being female in a male dominated culture. There is no way I can forget my four granddaughters. <laughs> <laughs> just know that they're, they're already having this experience in the world. Oh, I know. I know. And, uh, hopefully that they will find somebody like you to help mentor them. And, uh, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure well, there are a lot of great people out there. There are. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, thanks for being here, and I look forward to our next time, Zoe. I do, too. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As you can tell, Zoe and I hit it off quite well, and I look forward to speaking with her again uh, in the not-too-distant future, I hope. Normally, I really don't like conducting interviews myself because, well, I'm always afraid that I won't think of enough interesting questions to ask. <laughs> so, uh, before we talked, I asked Zoe to send me a list of questions that she would like to speak to. But, uh, well, Zoe is so easy to visit with that I never even got around to asking any of the dozen or so questions that she sent to me. In fact, I didn't even get to ask all of the questions that I came up with myself. As you will see, if you visit some of the links to Zoe's work that I've added to the program notes for this podcast, well, you still have a lot of surfing to do before you get close to seeing the full picture of Zoe's work. These are uh, really beautiful sites. They're full of photos and stories that I'm sure will catch your interest. And uh, I've linked to them in the program notes, as I said, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. Well, uh, I think that you've already heard enough from me for today. And, uh, well, besides, I've got to put the finishing touches on the talk that I'll be giving at the upcoming Imagine Orcas Island Music and Arts Festival that begins on the 6th of September. And uh, I'll be talking about the role that psychedelics have to play in this new age of artificial intelligence. Maybe I'll see you there. Outside of that hour that I'm committed to make my presentation, the rest of my time there will be spent walking around and visiting with fellow saloners who I expect will also be added to my list of new best friends. And hopefully you're going to be one of them too. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>